fire rescue, EMS, law enforcement. These are the three components of public safety, and those who answer the call are the first responders. Welcome to another episode of Five Alarm Task Force with your host, Steve Green. Five Alarm Task Force presents some of the best instructors, leaders, and mentors in public safety today to educate, elucidate, and entertain. No topic is out of bounds, and every opinion has value. Five Alarm Task Force is brought to you by Insight Fire Training, LLC, your best bet for fire service thermal imaging camera training, and by the Firehouse Tribune, where you can expand your horizons in emergency services and learn to work hard, stay safe, and live inspired. And our promotional partners, Dalmatian Productions, Chief Miller Products and Sites, LifeScan Wellness Centers, Saving the Lives of America's Heroes, Nesta Bars, the amazing new hand tool for the fire service, the Firefighter Cancer Foundation, fighting to extinguish firefighter cancer since 2004, the Firefighter Cancer Support Network, and the 2019 Great Florida Fire School. Remember, our ultimate goal is for you to be safe and return home after every call. So insert those earphones or turn up those speakers. The Five Alarm Task Force is being dispatched right now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Five Alarm Task Force. I'm your host, Steve Green. Happy to have you with us today. If you're a returning listener, we always welcome you. If you're a new listener, we're happy to have you. We hope you'll stick around and enjoy the show and enjoy many of our shows. You want to catch up on our podcast? Easy to do. Just visit our website at www.dalmatianproductions.tv and go to the podcast tab and the entire library will appear before you. Today, we're talking about EMS, and my guests are Jason Brooks and Kevin Onorovoli. They are both paramedics in their own areas, but they also work jointly in a company called DT for EMS. And this company and these two gentlemen are dedicated to helping our brothers and sisters who deliver EMS services, and that could be firefighter paramedics or just paramedics, EMTs, from having to deal with violence in the job uh, from patients that they're actually trying to help. You'll hear more about that when they come on in just a couple of minutes. And if you visit our website to follow up on some of the podcasts we've done or to visit the website, you can also, on the homepage, sign up for our newsletter. We send it out maybe five, six times a year. Uh, We do not send spam. We do not sell or give away your email address. We protect it to the best possible degree that we can. And um, as I said, we don't send any spam, and you can unsubscribe very easily by just sending us an email to unsubscribe. So you can sign up for the newsletter right on the homepage. If you follow us on Facebook, please like us. You can see us at forward slash DalmatProd or forward slash DalmatProdFire. We'd love to hear from you and know that you like our page, and you can keep abreast of the podcast from there as well. And speaking of how you keep abreast of the podcast and what you can do, many of you listen on podcast streaming services, what we call today platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc. And most of those ask you to leave a review. And that review is very important both to us and to the podcast platform. Because with a good review, we get rated higher by the platform. And that, in turn, makes it easier 
for others to find us when they search for Five Alarm Task Force. So please, if you haven't done so already, please, whichever platform you use, leave a nice, pleasant review for us, and it will certainly go a long way to help us and the fa your favorite platform. And if you'd also like to share more about our show with friends and relatives, you can do so by visiting our little online store uh, with our friends from Teespring. And the address is bit, capital B-I-T, dot L-Y, bit dot Lee, forward slash Dalmat Store, capital D-A-L-M-A-T, capital S-T-O-R-E. And there you'll find several versions of our T-shirts, you can choose multiple colors uh, with different verbiage on the back. And we also have mugs that you can use for coffee, tea, hot chocolate, or anything else. You drink from a mug with our logo emblazoned on it. And the best part of your shopping there is that a significant portion of the net proceeds are donated to the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation in Emmitsburg, Maryland, the number one uh, charity to help the families of firefighters who have paid the ultimate price in their service to their communities. And that's it. We'll be right back with our guests today, right after these words. As always, please stay tuned. New technology for the fire service seems to appear almost every day. And that technology demands a learning curve, especially if we're talking about thermal imaging cameras. That's where Insight Fire Training, LLC, is your best bet. With an excellent reputation across the U.S., Insight Fire Training will meet all your TIC training needs. Their curriculum is peer-reviewed and has been used internationally. Their instructors are Level 1 Thermography certified, and they have taught in 33 states and 4 countries. Their courses run from introductory to training the trainers. Courses are available online, classroom, classroom hybrid, and even live fire. Insight Training LLC is proficient in over 40 thermal imaging cameras, so you'll feel confident that they will know your make and model. Best of all, programs are customized to your specific needs, and their cadre of fire service veterans are vetted craftsmen of Project Kill the Flashover. They are so proficient that they have trained tick manufacturers on how best to use and sell their own product. And from now through September 10th, if you're going to Firehouse Expo in Nashville, Register for their 8-hour live fire class that will be offered on two separate days. That's Insight Fire Training, LLC. Look them up online at insightfiretrainingllc.com. Your best bet for tick training. Would you like to meet up with Andy and the gang from Insight Fire Training? Well, here's part of their upcoming schedule. September 12th to the 14th, train the trainer in Spotsylvania, Virginia Fire Department. Late September, the Insight Training webinar series will continue. Watch for an announcement on their Facebook page. September 27th, at the ISFSI Conference, achieving buy-in with thermal imaging. October 6th through 12th, at the Firehouse Expo in Nashville. Two hot classes over Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday by instructor Andy Starnes and instructor Thomas Anderson. October 24th, Insight Training webinar series continues, announcement pending on Facebook. And October 28th to 31st, Train the Trainer, Charleston, West Virginia Fire Department. Insight Fire Training, your best bet for tick training. 
the Firehouse Tribune, where inspiration was forged by those who came before us, opening the doors for us to build a path, a path to share our mission with the rest of the emergency service world. With a small, tight-knit team of first responders dedicated to sharing experiences and knowledge, we constantly strive to provide our followers with thought-provoking content from all aspects of emergency services and life. Our contributors speak at top fire and EMS conferences in the country. They have been guests on numerous fire service podcasts and will even come and speak at your firehouse or event. Interested? Visit their website, www.thefirehousetribune.com and find them on Facebook using The Firehouse Tribune and on Twitter at FH Tribune and on Instagram, FH Tribune. We live by one motto, not just in emergency services, but in life as well. Excellence is a habit, not a goal. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Until next time, work hard, stay safe, and live inspired. Welcome to Chief Miller. Chief Miller operates the largest social media page dedicated to the men and women of the fire service from around the world. Check him out on Instagram at Chief underscore Miller. Find him on Twitter at Chief underscore Miller. And check out the website where you can find Chief Miller Apparel at ChiefMillerApparel.com. And welcome back to this episode of Five Alum Task Force. I'm your host, Steve Green, and it is a pleasure to have you with us today. And today I have uh, two guests, one who has been with us before and one who is new. And my guests today are Jason Brooks and Kevin Onorovoli. And Jason uh, is an EMT paramedic and uh, IC, is the owner of DT4 EMS LLC and a recognized subject matter expert of violence in healthcare. Now, you're going to say, what do you mean, violence in healthcare? You get angry at your doctor because he didn't give you the prescription you want? No. It's a lot more than that. As a veteran paramedic and healthcare educator for over 20 to 22 years, Jason has presented across the country in the reasonable use of force when escaping a violent encounter. Kevin, who is joining us once again, it's a pleasure to have both of them here, Kevin has been in public safety field for over 25 years, starting in New Jersey and landing in southwest Florida 15 years ago, 16 years ago now. He started as an EMTB and after seven years decided to step up and become a paramedic. He currently uh, is a district supervisor for a department in southwest Florida and has been teaching the Escaping Violent Encounters class for over two years. And I'll tell you something. I was in his class two years ago. I was watching the slides. I was amazed in the videos. I was amazed by what I saw happening. And when he tells you a little bit about when they tell you a little bit about this, you will be surprised as well. That is how he became acquainted with uh, his, his previous partner, Kip, and now with Jason, who developed the, the concept between, between the, about the DT4EMS.com program. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining me. I am glad to be back. Thank you. That's great. Now, today we're going to be doing three segments. We're going to be talking about these three areas. The first is going to be the loss of neutrality in healthcare, and is it leading to an increase in violent attacks? The second is the use of a drug that you've heard on TV quite a lot in newscasts, both national and local, Narcan, but the use of the Narcan drug by non-trained personnel and how it is causing patients to become violent. And our last segment will be what do we what do we do to get back to being the care providers that we are supposed to be. So, uh, Jason, we'll start with you. Uh, let's start with number one, the loss of neutrality. What is that talking about, please? Well, loss of neutrality is, you know, it dates back all the way to World War One, when we look at healthcare providers and what they used to be, which 
uh, on the battlefield, the people with the big red crosses were there to give aid and care. Sure. They were considered neutral, uh, there to help everybody. Um, they were non-combatants. Well, then World War II came around, the Geneva, Geneva Conventions changed, and um, now the guys with the big red cross on their chest or their helmet were now carrying rifles. They were, all, they were now seen as combatants, which directly reflects to us today. If you look at, at our healthcare providers today, a lot of them have a misconception or are seen just like law enforcement. We're starting to act like cops. We're starting to look like cops. Uh, we dress like cops. Uh, and we're seen just the same as cops. As we all know, law enforcement isn't overly liked in all, all situations. So it's something that we need to get back to. We need to get back to being the actual care providers that we got into this profession to be. Excuse me, let me just interrupt you for a moment. And folks, you'll probably remember just several months ago a firefighter paramedic in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I know that city very well, unfortunately. I mean, I love the city. It's a great city. But sadly, he was, they were called to a, I think it was a, a violent patient initially. and uh, It was actually not a violent patient. It was a, a guy who was unresponsive in a bus. That no, was the overdose patient you were talking yep. about right. bringing up today, too. Right. Yep. And... Um, the young man went to take care of him, and as he approached, the gentleman pulled a gun and shot and killed him. This is the reality of what's happening today, and this is what we're addressing. So, Jason, please continue. Um, so what we're talking about is getting back to that neutrality, getting back to, you know, not dressing like cops, not acting like cops, and being health, actual health care providers uh, is what we're looking at trying to get back to. I can let me dovetail into that sure. because I've noticed over my career as well. And speaking of that, we used to be able to walk into major scenes. I mean, major messed up, could be a fight, could be post. I mean, we didn't do a lot of post shootings where I was from in Jersey, but down here we do. You can walk in and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, we got into a situation we're not supposed to necessarily be in. Whatever happened, happened. The dispatch right. notes got messed up. And it was, okay. We can say, wait, we don't care what happened. We're here. We're the medical people. Who wants to go to the hospital? Who's hurt? And it was like a snap of the finger and every attitude changed into place. Okay, it does, they can't help me with the crime part of it or the who did what part of it. It's mom's got to go to the hospital because whatever the domestic dispute happened or something transpired, they're here to help us with the medical issue. Suddenly, it doesn't matter anymore. It does not matter anymore. Um one of our other EVE instructors from my agency even phrases it from his experience, from his uh, time in the military, where he's, his instructor said, the minute you put on a uniform, you're a mercenary. You represent who you're working for. They don't know you personally. Try not to take it personally because they're going to get in your face. And lo and behold, that's changed from the medical perspective. And like Jason was saying, unfortunately, our uniforms look like law enforcement. Right. Um, we're to we're at polo shirts now, but they still have that little bit of feel and look to it. And if we put our full uniform on, badges, everything, uh, you can't tell the difference. Right. Outside of what we wear on our belts, which is there's no firearms, no tasers. And I say yet, because I'm afraid, uh, and unfortunately, that that is coming down the line for some people. And it's it's not a place that we necessarily want to go. Um, we're kind of neutral in it from the Eve perspective um, because there's a lot more responsibility that goes when they start playing with that stuff. Um, but we, we've lost that neutrality. We cannot no longer walk into situations, say we're EMS, 
we're here for help you out with the medical stuff and the situation changes it, it they're right on you right well i can tell you that back in 1980 when i was first hired by guilford county ems in, in greensboro area to work part-time in november of that year there was a shooting in uh in greensboro downtown at a at a confrontation between some African-American demonstrators and some members of the Ku Klux Klan. And several people were shot, uh, several were killed. Uh, within a couple of weeks, EMS started putting uh, two ballistic vests on each rig, which was great <clears throat> when, if I was the number two guy, but I often had to be the number three guy in the back and number three didn't have anything other than holding up a uh, an old um, right e e EKG. In front and of that me. thing would stop a bullet. That thing, that yeah, was a brick. Well, yeah, um, the five. But right. we're actually at a point now in our agency um, where we are developing the policy to implement ballistic vests. They're they're coming. They have to come. Um, and it's, it's it's sad to say that they have to come, but we're at that point. Right. And, that and the, the thing is, is a lot of agencies are going to vest. And I'm not saying vests are a bad thing. They are a good thing. They are a level of protection. But the vest also needs to be one that does not make you look like a tactical cop. Right. It, exactly. It, it can't be blue it, or excuse me, it can't be black with with the uh, all the little holsters on it and um, mm -hmm. look like you're heading into battle. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of places are going. And it's making it even more difficult to say who's the right. people who are here to care for me and who are the cops. It's get, it's getting more and more difficult. Um, I will say, uh, give an example of agency, uh, city of Detroit EMS. Um, they just went to vest. They're a 24 hour wear. Uh, if you're on duty, you wear it, but will be too. In, great, in great big letter in their outer carrier vest, uh, there's nothing can be hanging off of them. Uh, they have great big EMS. They're blue. Uh, they're, they're very, very easily, dis very distinctable. Um, on the fire side, they have red ones that say fire and, you know, it helps to alleviate some of that confusion. Mm -hmm. So that's one of those things that people need to take into consideration when they're coming up with a vest policy or going to wear a vest is, is it under the shirt uh, vest or is it over the carrier vest? If it's over the shirt vest, then it needs to be one that again, doesn't make more confusion to who are these people? Are they here to help us? Or are they here to take custody and control of us? That's a really and that's good what's point. happening on our side of it is um, my agency is actually in the, like I said, in the process of doing that and looking into that very that very thing. They're going to be over the uniform, and they're going to be non-tactical looking vests. Bright EMS blue with the EMS things. They might have pockets. It's, the way I describe it is it's going to look like a work vest. Mm -hmm. All right. That looks good. Let me ask you this question since you're both well-versed on this. Are the outer, do the outer ones, especially if they're going to be 24-7 type vests, are the outer ones, do they offer more protection than the ones you can wear under, like between your, your, your jersey or your shirt and your undershirt? Same type of protection. They're the same threat level. Um, so either a 2A or 3A, depending on what they buy. Um, no difference there. Uh, it's just whether or not they can, if they're sitting in the station, can they take can them they off. easily take it off? Right. Um, so uh, I'll give an example for like city of Detroit. Their policy is anytime that they are outside of the station, they have to wear the vest so they can easily take it on and off when they are in their station. 
if you if if it's one you have to put your shirt back on and tuck your shirt in every time, yeah. it's just gonna be impossible to, to try to do don, don it off that. Yeah, so that makes that makes more sense for the outer one, certainly. All right, so why why do you think that we're seeing besides the the vest part and our, our uniforms? Do you see any other reasons that you can put your fingers on that are leading to more violence against EMS uh, personnel? Overall change in society is the generalized Absolutely. subject. Absolutely. I mean, to come with specifics is, ex- I, Jason might have more specifics than I do because mine's mostly anecdotal um, from experience within the field is that that whole loss of society's feeling towards anybody in uniform. Right. Right. And, and I believe that there's a lot of that. And I also believe that, you know, we have an extremely broken system when it comes to mental health care, things like that. And we are just something else to be able to lash out to. And unfortunately, when we've lost this neutrality, we've also become to become a little jaded in our profession instead of forgetting that we're there to help people. And it may not be an emergency to you as the paramedic, but to the person who called it is it is their emergency. Yes, right. And we, and unfortunately, we sometimes have bad attitudes. We've we're getting busier, and they're not putting more ambulances on the road to help out help out our people. So it's where we used to take you know six eight calls in a twelve hour period. Now we're taking twelve plus calls in a twelve hour period, and you know it's it's it wears on 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 the providers, and sometimes they f- they forget what was the reason I got into this to start with. That's for sure. And, and it's true. You're and, constantly being beat up. Sorry, Jay. No, you're fine. Uh, we are constantly getting beat up as, as paramedics uh, or healthcare providers. And so we come off with so slightly an attitude. And it's not that, that a lot of the providers mean to. Um, it's just it comes off. And then, you know, the general population now, we're person in uniform. They just react to us. Um yeah. So again, it comes back to that getting back into why why you started in healthcare. Um, most people I know, and I've traveled around the country, and I ask every single class, "Why did you get into healthcare?" And the answer generally is always, "I got into help people." Very rarely mm-hmm. do I do I hear people say, "I got into it because you know I thought it'd be just an easy job, or uh, you know I'd just earn money sleeping, things like that." I hear people say, "Because I wanted to help people, I wanted to make a difference." We got to remember that. Oh, sure. I mean, listen. and that's consistent. And one of the things that was Kip that brought up in our last podcast that I actually started using and teaching because I, and even when I teach medic school and EMT school, um, it was something that I hadn't even realized so much so in the 20 years I've been doing it. And it was, we created this problem from the nine, like, like Jason said, where people are ticked off because you're running on BS emergency, whatever it might be, stub toe, or, you know, we've run on them. We have an infected tooth. I need to go to the emergency room. And you're like, oh, how do we answer this question? Um, but it was, as Kip mentioned, we did a great job in the field of EMS of finding what you should do to, in an emergency, call 911. If you have an emergency, pick up that phone and call 911. We didn't do a fantastic job of defining what an emergency is. Exactly. So we have the people doing exactly what we asked them to do, and we're getting pissed off at them for doing what we asked them to do. And it triggered in my head. Again, I was in the – how long have I been doing it? And I'm sitting there listening to him going, geez, Kev, you're an idiot. How did you not come to this conclusion yourself? So now it's made my 
perspective different when I supervise. It's also made my perspective different when I run a call. It's made my perspective different when I teach to the, the newer people to tell them that. And even when I do the EVE training, we bring it up. This is something we caused. It's not going to get fixed anytime soon. We're not going to fix it in the next week. It might not even happen in, in my full career. So understand when you're going there and you're ticked off that there are six cars sitting in the driveway and this person could have gotten driven by a family member. That's not what we told them to do. Right. Uh, one of my first calls when I was in my training rides was an unknown type building. So it was a kind of a low income section of town and we got there and I, the medic said to me, he goes, okay, it's your, you take the lead on this one. And everybody was just sitting on the porch. And I said, somebody call an ambulance. And one gentleman said he did. And I said, what seems to be the problem? He says, my toenails turning yellow. Yep. And it went from there to the point where I said, listen, you know, we don't treat that, but if you want to go to the hospital, we'll take you. And then he said, well, would you, would you stick around and give me a ride home? And I said, well, if you look at that truck, in, front, in your driveway, can you read the word on the side of that? He says, yeah, it says the ambulance. I said, right, it doesn't say taxi. So we'll take you to the hospital, but we can't stick around and wait for you when you're ready to go home. You'll have to right. find a ride home. So if you'd like to come with us, we'll be happy to take you. And at that moment, his eyes kind of like widened. And I think it was that moment, because we had had some other words in between, polite, mm -hmm. polite. But I think he realized exactly where he was and where, where we were that uh, he, somebody had probably told them, go ahead and call, call the ambulance. They'll come and take you and take it in. And they didn't have a, a true understanding of what we do. Right. And as you just said, you know, th and this happened in 1980. So this has go been going on for well over 30 years since we created the, the concept of the 911 system. Uh, and while it relieved operators, most operators uh, of most of these emergency calls, as you said, it created uh, a, almost a horror show for those of us in uh, in EMS and fire uh, care and even law enforcement in, in some circumstances. And we need to find a way to better educate the public because it's tough to re-educate people. And that's the, that's the wall we're up against because they've already been educated about, as you just said, Kevin, 911, call for an it's, emergency. It's a hard thing to go into the definition of and trying to define it even further because, I mean, this is my contention right now with my, my entire industry, um, is we don't have a national home base right. to help with that. So fire does, police does, who has EMS? Good question. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a whole separate discussion debate going on within the industry of education wise. What names do we go by? Do we change it? Is there a career path? How can we get away from this being an entry level only position and not care? Like Jason said, they're, they're not putting ambulances on the road because I got everybody scared for everything else except the fact you're going to die of a heart attack more frequently than a fire. Right. And that's not slamming anybody on the FD side because they got their job to do too. We understand that we all work together, but it's frustrating when, from a career perspective when you got new people going in. You're like, hey, guys, you might want to think of a different career path at some point because this is kind of questionable right now. Right. And it leads to what you were just saying. How are we going to define it? Well, we can't even get definitions of normal stuff for our job. How are we going to redefine the entire explanation of 911? Sure, sure. You know, as we know that some communities, and, it, and even mine just started within the last year here in, in southeast Florida, is, uh, mm -hmm. are doing low-level responses. 
Um, we are, are too. Yeah, and so they have different vehicles, different people who man it. Uh, yep. uh, this, uh, my city here took uh, a uh, retired uh, rescue, repainted it uh, in lovely lavender, uh, lavender mm-hmm. and some blue stripes, and uh, it can be most times it can be at your this call when you come when at your location usually within depending on how busy they are but half hour to, to, to 40 minutes for a non-emergency right and our and our dispatches of course were retrained to handle along this way and those i think are a start but it's difficult for you know we're a community here of about uh, a little over a hundred thousand people so it's one thing for a community this size to do it but you take a city like Detroit, you take Charlotte, Boston, it's right. a much more difficult, as, as much as they may want to do it. Now, D.C. has has also done it as, a, as one of the major areas, metropolitan areas. I think they're the first, actually, that started it as a major metro. Or L.A., I mean, it's just such a major uh, change and new method of delivery of services that it's very difficult to, in, you know, to set up right away. So, it's a start, but you're still not you're still not taking away them picking up the phone and calling nine one one. Exactly, exactly. Only through education that like they've started right. here in this community with it. I think they've started with, I think it's eight one one or seven one one here for non emergency okay. calls. I, but whatever the case is, there's still a major educational uh, program that's going to have to take place in every community, from the smallest rural location to the largest cities in the country and everyone in between to re-educate our populace to understand why we come out, what's our, what our job, what our job is. You know, the joke used to be, well, we, they like firefighters because we don't give tickets. But park in front of a fire hydrant when we have a call, we'll give you something better. <laughs> we'll give you something better than a ticket. We'll ticket you too, but we'll also put an LDH right through the back windows of your car. And, and we don't mind doing that. But I think that this education program and the fact, as you mentioned, that you don't have a national organization. Yes, there's a you know, national registry of paramedics, national registry of VMTs, but that does not come anywhere near what the IAFC is or the NVFC, uh, the PBA and something like that. We don't have a national organization for health providers, emergency health providers. And as you said, that brings up a whole method of discussion and do you even have a a place where that can be discussed as a group do you have a national convention or two or major regional conferences where that can be an item on the agenda to be discussed how do you i think it's still ongoing because i see the discussions from some of the higher ups within the field um jay may be able to help out with that because it's usually skip and his his group that um somebody's always trying to make this happen and then it just falls by the wayside. There's no momentum to it. Right. Right. Jason. Well, well, one of the things that I, I that I would like to get back to real quick in sure. talking about our loss neutrality for a minute is in, you kind of hit it on the nose, Steve, a little bit. One of the big things we have a problem with is perceived disrespect. So one of the things that, uh, uh, has gotten a lot of our, our providers assaulted it's been through uh, perceived disrespect. So I'll give you an example. When uh, even back in the 1980s, when you made the comment to the guy, "Hey, on the side of that ambulance, does, what's it say? Ambulance? Yeah, it doesn't say taxi cab, does it?" So that's starting to set people off more because people are more offended 
by anything yep. you say right. that they don't agree with. Um, and uh, I'll give you a, another example of that. This is a happened at a an agency that we trained. Actually, while we were there training them, this actually occurred. Um, and it was a crew that we had not trained yet. But uh, they were picking up an active stroke patient. The uh, It was a white crew in a uh, predominantly black neighborhood. The, uh, the son arrived, and the paramedics made the comment of, of, listen, we're taking him to X hospital, which was not the hospital that uh, the family wanted, to, wanted the person to go to, but it was not a stroke center. Right. Well, instead of trying to explain that, all they said was, is, is that's where we're going. And they slammed her, put her in the ambulance, and they took off. The son, who was irate, uh, grabbed a, a radio off the side of one of the firefighters and chucked it through the back window of the ambulance. It went completely through the back window and struck the paramedic in the head, knocking him unconscious. Oh, but did the medics do anything wrong? The answer is no. They didn't do anything wrong, but they didn't show the guy respect. Right. They were assaulted because they didn't take the 10 seconds to say, you know, listen, I know you want him to go to X hospital, but they cannot care for what your mom, the problem your mom has right now. And that, and that changes everything. Oh, yep, sure. It, could have alleviated it changes everything. everything. Yeah, I, I agree. And I agree. What I said was, and as my medic trainer told me, he says, you know, that probably wasn't the best thing to say, put it. But it also had come after 25 minutes of back and forth trying to explain to him why we don't normally transport somebody with that condition and to find out that of course he had a long standing alcohol abuse problem and 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 it was already being treated for cirrhosis but it took a lot to get that out of him and you know we were waiting we figured it was a non-emergency call to get get the next run and uh, i probably i should have been more patient myself in that and i've we've talked about that i'm still friends with that trainer uh, who's we, we've retired. all made those mistakes we've yeah, all, all been us. there I mean, I even said when I first took this course was if I had taken it 20-something years ago, my career would have been different. And not that I wouldn't have stayed in the career. I was having visions of things and calls that I had been on. Uh, I probably could have done things a little bit differently. Right, right. So Yeah, all right. we all could have. And we there's a lot of things that we uh, we let our, our emotions get the better of us. We have to remember that we're a customer-based service. And it's customer service. And they are your customer. Whether they're right or wrong, they're, they're still our customer. And we have to do the best we can to discuss with them that of what their options are without you know, trying to come off condescending or being a, a smart ass. Um, but unfortunately, we don't always do that. Um, we, need, we need to look at it as if we were to uh, be recorded at all times, which we pretty much are anywhere we go nowadays, and if it were to be played back, how would it look? Would we look like we were the caregivers that we were meant to be? Um, give me an example. What's, uh, I don't remember exactly where this happened at again, but uh, they ambulance crew showed up. It was like 2 in the morning for a guy who was on the side of the highway who was confused. Um, they were getting very frustrated with him. There was uh, three female uh, EMTs in the back, um, and they got extremely uh, smart alley with him. Um, very condescending. Finally, they ended up dumping him off to the police, even though he couldn't answer questions appropriately. Police took him to a gas station, dumped him off. And he ended up uh, getting hit by a car and dying. Yeah. Remember that story, Kevin? 
Vaguely. I don't remember what area that was. I don't remember offhand either. But in the end, you know, th- those those EMTs were, were in the wrong. The way they treated them, and Correct. it was all on camera. It was all played out there. And it just gave another black eye to healthcare providers of we don't care or that we don't, uh, you know, we're more worried about getting some sleep than we are taking care of somebody. And, you know, those things is, uh, as we call it in our program is peeing in the pool. It's, it's literally taking, you know, our profession and, you know, making us look bad again. And it was, that was all, I mean, there was millions of views on Facebook of that whole video. Anytime you get anything posted, it's going to look – and they, they don't look at the positive parts. Everything's negative. It gets right. more hits, and that's what they're going to post. Yeah. So we end up looking at a bunch of stuff, <laughs> and the dog's in again. <laughs> hey, Louie. <laughs> Bill goes off on a phone. He thinks it's the front door. Oh, yeah. So, um, Keffy does the same thing. Yeah, uh, and I got a seven, and he's seven pounds, so he's a threat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, thanks, Lou, for the distraction. Right, I'll, I'll pick it up. That one of the things that we have to realize <laughs> is that um, a black eye for us, anybody who's a first responder, any of our three branches, is a huge black eye. Absolutely, it's not just oh, it's a it's a little injury. Put a stake on it, and you'll get better. A black eye on one is a black eye in everyone. Yep. Uh, and now with the police, police um, body cams, and right. most of the departments we function with have them. Um, and I had to tell my own providers, and I tell them in class, if you notice there's one officer that's standing there doing the conversation up with the person or close to us, and there's always one behind us, not just watching our backs, he's recording everything that's going on because right. those cameras are way more than 180 degree coverage they're high definition video and audio so everything you say is there right crystal clear it's going to be it's it's a blessing and a curse the blessings right now which will be in your the second we want to talk about the narcan later is we're now waking these people up after doing full cardiac arrest on them and they're signing off yeah, and you're looking back at the at the cop going, uh, "Was that recorded?" And they're like, "Yeah, good, because now you just saved us." Right. You know. So, but yeah, the everything one one video of us doing something ridiculously stupid makes us all look bad, and that's going to be remembered when people go to court, when they have interactions with us, when they call nine one, and some people won't even call now because of that. Right. That that's a very good point to make. Maybe that's a good place to, if we're going to segue into our next segment, is. We want to educate the public, not just about 911, but when, when is the right time to make that call and what to expect when they make it um, so that they understand what we're coming for. I think that, as you said, both of you said, that the, there's been a major change across the board in all first responders, and I see it. The one thing that I, that's, I'm most focused on is in the fire service, where in, in the, the days back, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago, that people became a firefighter or a firefighter medic or a paramedic for a reason. A lot of us back then did it because of the show Emergency. That's what got me interested. I had been admiring firefighters and visiting stations all my life. I never intended to be one. I had no intention of even being a volunteer, 
only that the opportunity presented itself by happenstance. And that's what led me to it. But we did it for that reason. And it was that concept of watching Johnny and Roy and the other people, how they were helping people. That's what they did. And there were comic situations, there were serious situations, and there was everything in between. But we said, boy, it would be nice to be able to help somebody by doing that. And a lot of us did that. Today, with some of the younger generations that have come in and are coming in, they're simply looking at the fire services and say, well, I can apply to the bank for the job. I can apply to that fire station to the job. I can go to the management of the grocery store. That's how they're looking at it. It's not yes. that passion that many of us came in with with, a, with a, a goal in mind, which was to reach out and help somebody. I pushed my students to actually watch that show. <laughs> I'm like, great. go back and watch it. You need to learn the history of why you have a job. That's a great point. And yeah, and, and fortunately, I kind of somewhat forced me. You need to watch it because we'll make the comments in class, and they go, "Who?" We're like, yeah. "Oh no, we are that old." Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it just gives them. And the funny part too, that happened watch it, funny, re, really hilariously, is beginning of the early '70s when that show was popular. Mid '70s when I was a kid and watching it was there. We're still dealing with the same stuff, same calls. You watch the reruns, and you're like, "Yeah, we just dealt with that last week." Yep, exactly. So it hasn't really changed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something we just jokingly tell them you need to watch because you have to know where you came from and why you're doing what you're doing. Right. Exactly. And that, listen. that's funny you bring that up, Kevin, cause I, I make my EMT students and paramedic students watch those shows too. Yeah. I, I do the same thing. That's great. They don't understand the history of the job. And then we talk no. about it. They look at me like I have four heads. I'm like, look, if that show hadn't been out here, you wouldn't have a job right now. You would not have EMS. Yeah. And those first few shows, those first three shows, that showed their frustration with having had the training and then not able to use it because the state mm -hmm. hadn't passed a law yet. You could, the, both guys really embodied that frustration beautifully in those three episodes because you saw they were torn. And they finally said, to hell with doctor's orders, I'm going to take care of this patient. It happened to be Dixie, the nurse in, in that, in that right. MVA. M MVC, I'm sorry, no more accidents. They're all collisions. Exactly, everything's um, preventable. Right, and uh, <laughs> but it showed not only their dedication, but their personal and genuine concern for treating somebody, and in this case, somebody they knew well who had helped train them by using the knowledge they had, even though the ink had not been put on the bill yet. And I think those three are, are probably some of the best you could show your classes to watch mm -hmm. about why we do the job we do because yeah. you see that passion uh, in there. And so I hope uh, the uh, Senator uh, estate will listen to this podcast and, <laughs> and make us all very, uh, very happy. They have a great well, maybe, museum for Maybe it. Jay can forward this podcast out to L.A. County on your behalf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be good, too. All right. Do we have anything else we want to cover in uh, neutrality or are we ready to move on to our next level? I'm good with what we've got, Jay. You? Yep. Okay, good. All right, folks, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back with uh, Jay and Kevin, we're going to talking about the use of Narcan by non-trained personnel and how it may be the cause of patients becoming more violent. So we'll be right back with our guests right after these words. Please stay tuned. The tone sound and the dispatcher announcers 
stations 14 and 16, working residential structure. That was all you needed to hear. You jump up from your chair, head to the engine, and climb into the jump seat. As the queue screams, you take stock of your PPE, bunker pants, check, turnout coat, check, hood, check, gloves, check, escape line, check, SCBA strapped on, you're ready. Upon arrival, you jump off the apparatus, grab the loops of the red cross lane, and head for the open front door, where smoke is pouring out. You make sure your buddy's behind you. You crouch low and make your way inside, your trusty SCBA mask hanging on your tool belt. What? Stop everything. What the hell are you thinking? You see it's a working room and contents fire, and the smoke is banking down almost to the floor. Who do you think you are, Superman? One breath of that crap and the smoke will damage you in some way, guaranteed. All the soot, carbon, carcinogens, and other outgassing materials will enter your body through the pores on your unprotected face. Don't be the domino, the first person down that forces everyone else to change their tasks to take care of you. Always remember, face peace on. You have comrades depending on you and a family to go home to. Face peace on. You're ready to call it a night. The kids are tucked in, the lights are out, and the dog's in the den. Seems all is calm. But stop. It's not all right. To keep you and your family safe in the event of a fire, we're advising you to close before you doze. Close your bedroom doors when you go to sleep. Why? Because closed doors dramatically decrease heat and carbon monoxide levels which provide trapped occupants more time for help to arrive. And closed doors can slow the spread of the fire, increase oxygen levels, and decrease temperatures dramatically. You've invested in smoke and carbon monoxide alarms. You've practiced fire escape plans with your family. Now learn another important way to protect all of you. Close before you doze. Also remember, if you are able to escape, make sure the last one out closes the main door. Remember, close before you doze. This message is brought to you by the UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute, closebeforeyoudoze.org, your local fire department, and this podcaster. You show up for your shift, but you're not feeling 100%. You greet your colleagues with a smile, but you just can't put your finger on it. I'll shake it off in an hour, you think to yourself. You take in a couple of nothing runs, but you're still not feeling any better. When you get back to the barn, you throw some cold water on your face and think, yeah, that's more like it, and head back to the day room. With training scheduled for after lunch, you make yourself comfortable in one of the recliners. But as you sit there, you feel ill. You start to sweat, and you feel nauseous. There's a pain in your left arm that you've never had before. Hey, guys, you call out. I'm not feeling... And your voice trails off. Your eyes close, and the darkness surrounds you. More firefighters die from cardiovascular health issues than any other reason. Don't let self-pride get in the way of taking care of yourself. See your doctor on a regular basis and be sure to advise him or her that you are a firefighter. Don't be a statistic. Be a healthy firefighter with a long career. For more information, visit the IAFF, the NVFC, or the IAFC-SHS website. And welcome back to this episode of Five Alarm Task Force. I'm your host, Steve Green, and with me today are uh, two well-experienced uh, paramedics, Jason Brooks and Kevin Onorovoli. And we're talking about uh, another side of EMS that the public doesn't often see, and if they do, it's because it's on the news. But you have to. we want you to understand a side that 
those in emergency care and for, who are first responders see every day. Everybody does try to make improvements. You know, that's who we are as, as people dedicated to helping people. Everybody really does care in that when it gets down to brass tacks. That's why we become police officers. That's why we become firefighters and paramedics and EMTs because we do care about helping people. But sometimes it's not as easy as we want to, and sometimes there's even resistance to what we try to do to help people. And that's not often discussed publicly, and that's why we felt it was very important to, to bring uh, Jason and Kevin uh, to the show to discuss this part of, of EMS. And some of you out there, I'm sure many of you uh, who, who have EMS delivery services, if you're either a member of it, you've seen it. If you're on the parallel, say maybe you're just a firefighter, you're not a paramedic, but you see it because you go on, you, you dispatch at the same time with an ambulance, uh, whether it's your department or a private, private ambulance. And this is what we're seeing now. So this is a different side of it. So in this segment, uh, Jason and Kevin are going to talk about the use of Narcan. Now, Narcan, you've heard in the news uh, a lot in the last few years. It is a very strong medication and a very useful medication, especially in opioid overdoses. But as with any medications, from an aspirin to the most powerful medication a doctor or hospital can give you, not used correctly or not administered correctly or not dosed correctly can have negative impact. So in this one, we're going to talk about that uh, and the effect it can have on patients. So Jason, we'll start with you. So Narcan. Probably uh, arguably listed as the number one most misused drug uh, out there. Kevin, would you agree with us? Oh, yeah. At the moment, absolutely. All right. So I'll give you an example of how misused it is. I, uh, I had a guy who called me up. Uh, he was actually in one of my uh, first aid uh, CPR classes. Called me up. In, uh, they had a patient uh, in front of his. He works at a cellular store. And... Uh, uh, someone came in and said, hey, there's some guy passed out in his car. He goes over there. The guy's breathing normally, He's, uh, but he's unresponsive. Uh, um, they, uh, he does have a ID tag uh, that says he's a diabetic. Um, they're talking. Uh, he calls 911. Fire department shows up there. First thing the fire department does is gets out and hits him with Narcan. <laughs> Come on. And so he calls me up. He's like, why'd they do that? And I went. And I just laughed. I went, um, because they are not well-trained. Uh, I don't have an answer for you. Um, obviously, the Narcan did nothing, by the way. Sure. Um, he's uh, uh, the, the ambulance gets there, and the ambulance dosed him with more Narcan. <laughs> and then, oh. after the my former student uh, says to them, hey, his I, he's got a medical alert tag, and it says he's a diabetic. Um, do you think maybe this has something to do with it? So they finally checked a blood sugar and the blood sugar, he came back at 32. (laughs) Surprise. Right. Exactly. So this guy who obviously had no signs or symptoms to a, to an overdose, you know, he had a good respiratory drive. Um, obviously they never checked his pupils, see if they were pinpointing or anything like that. Um, he got a total of four milligrams of Narcan internasally before ever getting any care for his diabetes. So why is this a problem? That's, that's the question. Well, there's a lot of problems to this. 
one problem is is when people are giving Narcan, they're not being treated or taught the proper way to even give Narcan. Exactly. The, the, the goal of Narcan is not to wake somebody up. So we'll use an example. Let's say that, that Kevin uh, was, a, was a, you know, a couple dime bags a day user. and Stop. Uh, you told me we're going to share that information. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and he's become dependent on, on uh, his, his drug intoxication level. We come in here and we slam him with two milligrams of Narcan and we completely reverse him. Is Kevin going to be a very happy person with us at that point? No. Not at all. No. And that's number one where we start getting people getting assaulted. On top of that, we're slamming people with Narcan. We're waking them up. They're, uh, they're vomiting. Uh, yes. So we're now having unsecured airways. We have a slew of other medical problems that are occurring with us. So those are huge issues. And people need to be taught that with Narcan administration, we only give it just enough to get them to start breathing. I, per- I firmly believe that we should take away Narcan from people and just get everybody bag valve mass. I, I agree. And I've actually mentioned that when I've had conversations with local law enforcement officers on scenes. I'm like, I'd rather see them hand you guys BVMs to help breathe for them until we get there. I said, but we also had the problem within our industry over the past 10 plus years where it changed where I don't know where it changed in the treatment guidelines, where it changed in the education, where everybody was getting slammed at one to two milligrams of Narcan IV. I'm like, no, where did this change? We've, I've always been taught, and I can only speak for myself, Jason will probably back this as well, is exactly what he just said. We only give enough to increase their ventilatory rate. That's it. We want them sleeping but breathing because of the exact reasons that Jason just brought up. They're going to take, we're going to take their high away. They're going to be pissed. They're going to want to fight. And we're the first people in their room in the, in their way. The other part of it, the vomiting, this is not spittle. They look at you and they projectile vomit. Oh yeah. So this is not, and then also we're perpetuating the, the, um, symptoms of withdrawal right away. And Steve, you mentioned earlier in a conversation, you were familiar with that. Right. So imagine that being immediately thrown onto somebody. In, 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 in a situation like that. Now you've opened up an entire Pandora's box of different medical issues that you're now going to have to treat while this person is trying to run away from you and beat you up. Well, yeah. on top of that, you know, let's even just go into, into actual healthcare providers. How many times have you heard, Kevin, someone say, I wait till I get right to the ER doors and I slam them with some yep. Narcan so that the hospital can deal with them? Yep, and then you've just ticked that's, off everybody else in the hospital. Well, that's punitive medicine. Right. Yep. You, that goes back goes back to our first thing of loss of neutrality. We're actually giving doing punitive medicine. Look at the paramedics right now who are just got in trouble for making comments of, listen, you, you better be nice. I pick your needle size. And they're shoving 14-gauge needles into people who are intoxicated. There, oh. Did you just see the recent story about that, that they have yep. two people about to be charged and fired? I think they were fired. They're about to be charged. I, yep. I didn't see that. They did it in front of the, of the, of the patient family member. Uh, one oh. of them that was done was it was a kid that they put a. a That's a, the one. That's the most yeah. recent one. Yep. It they was a, a 14, 14 or 16 gauge into mm-hmm. into a kid. The kid was like what 14 years, 16 years old. I think she like was that? 16 years old. Yeah. And whatever the issues were, and they were like, "Oh, we'll fix this for you in the future." And they just, I'm like, they did what? I'm reading the story, going, "Oh dear Lord, here we go." Uh, I've joked with my nurses for the procedures I have. 
when they use a, a, a 22 I, and I tell them what a good job they did and they said well you know I said well yeah I used to do this but I used to use 16 gauge and I and, and they said what and I said yeah most of my patients were unconscious when I delivered the, delivered it and I was we were still using ringers in those days so it was usually in a trauma well, we patient. still do now well, you know, it's funny. It's ringers, transferred over. Everything's ringers now. I, really? Because yeah. that's news. Because uh, for, for the longest time, ringers I'll fill was, you in later. Yeah, <laughs> ringers was hung up and kept in the cabinets and nobody wanted yep. to, to take it out. But, you know, that, on a trauma patient, that's what we used. We, we'd hang two bags of, uh, of ringers real fast and maybe even a bag of saline if um, in a real bad trauma situation. And again, we were always told in a trauma system like that, especially multiple gunshots, stuff like that, to get in as much as we could as fast, as quickly as we could. And that's, that's what, changed, but that's I'll tell you what, about that yeah. at the end. But that's why we used <laughs> the, the large gauge. And that was the only time, by the way, we right. would use a, like a 16-gauge. You, you mean you use the appropriate equipment that was appropriate for your patient following an assessment? Say it isn't so. <laughs> was I too sarcastic? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, I guess we did. I guess I have to admit it in front of all our listeners. Oh my God, yes. we assessed our patients. We assessed that our goes patient. with the camp part because that is something I harp on with my students. I harp on with you. Then it goes with Jason's initial story. Right. You have to assess the people you come up to and determine what you have to do. This cookbook stuff is coming too much in the forefront, and you know, I push it and I keep saying I, but that's the only thing I have right now is my, my experience sure. is with the students. Do not just do something because you think you can. Tell me why. I might not necessarily agree with your treatment modality, but if you can justify it to me, I'll let it go. As long as you're not hurting somebody and doing something remotely stupid. That's a good point. And right now, like we said with the the assessments, we're just getting in there and people are slamming one or two milligrams of Narcan. I'm like, I was never taught ever to start with one. We were always taught, it, written, it says 0.4 milligrams. We used 0.5 because when it came in the little Brista jet, the first line was a half a milligram. It was easier to read. Right. That was basically the only reason. Well, you know, in the same and way, then, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I said, if you have to give more, slowly give more. Do not just slam them with all of it. Yeah, good point. And, you know, for a paramedic who's also a firefighter, if they're not on a, on a medical call and they're coming out on a fire call and they're going to be used on the fire scene, they know that that IC, the first thing that IC is going to do is a size up. Or a good IC is going to do is a size up. <coughs> and they're going to look at the scene. They're going to try to do a 360, assess the situation, and set up their plan of attack and assign their firefighters and their medics to do what has to be done. That should be, and they should know that if if they're if they're firefighter medics and they're doing the medical call, the first thing that should come to mind is the first thing you do when you get on scene of your call is you assess it. What's going on here? What's happening? What's what are the circumstances? What's happening around them and what's happening around us? And then you come up with your plan of attack, and that's exactly what you just said. That nobody, and we shouldn't do it, and yet as it's happening from what you guys are saying, is that just running in based on simply the information in the dispatch and they're taking action without doing any other assessment first. And the, and like you said, Jason, your first story about the guy who's the diabetic just rings so true because number one of what happened, number two, I don't, there's probably not any of us out there who have done crossover medical work who have not come across that kind of a patient a diabetic patient 
who has those symptoms. And we even smell the breath. We're looking for the acetone, the smell. Throw another curve into that and make it a nuance-set diabetic okay. who doesn't have it. And this is the first time they've gone unconscious because their blood sugar dropped. And there's a whole other metabolic issue going on. And you've just slammed them with four of Narcan. Right. I know we're talking extremes. Everybody's intent is to you know, get these people to live and have them survive. Um, but like everything else, the pendulum swings too far to the other side and somebody's not standing up going, hold on. I mean, like we said initially, Jane, I said in the beginning of this, we're like, we're about to piss people off. And probably after Friday, we're going to. It's not that we don't want them to get the proper treatment or have other responders do it, but let's understand how to do this effectively so we don't put ourselves in positions and the other responders in positions where they get injured. Um, I mean, I think Jason wanted to touch on the Wisconsin story and add it to our training because it's a perfect example of why we have to be extremely careful with this medication. Go ahead, Jason. So let, let's segue. Let's segue for a minute because Steve, you actually brought up Appleton, Wisconsin, right? And I'm gonna for those who have not uh, seen the story, I'm gonna talk about it real quick. So, uh, police and EMS get dispatched to a guy who is uh, incoherent on a bus. It's a uh, it's a transit bus going from city to city. Um, they get there, EMS arrives, or excuse me, PD arrives first. Uh, the guy, again, in and out of consciousness, uh, not coherent. Medics arrive on scene. They, they do a, a good, thorough assessment. They quickly realize that, uh, yep, this is most likely an OD. Uh, they give the guy some Narcan. He becomes conscious, awake, alert. And the guy still doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to a lot of the story. Things don't, aren't adding up. He gets off the bus. The uh, all the medics are just kind of standing around while the cops are talking to him. They're tr- they're trying to get him to go to the hospital because, again, they don't know how much of this drug they have taken. Is this Narcan going to wear back off? Is he going to you know, uh, is it going to turn into another medical emergency? So they're all just kind of standing around. The guys getting a little more squirmy and squirmy. The cops ask if they can get some ID on the guy. The guy refu- refuses to give him ID. Um, he eventually goes to the point where they tell him that either he's going to go to the hospital or they're going to place him in a protective custody, at which point in time he says, let me check my pockets and, and see if I can get your ID. And he pulls out a gun and fires off several rounds, striking an, uh, one of the firefighters, killing him. Um, exchange of gunfire back and forth. Um, he has uh, finally shot himself. I don't believe, if I remember right, he did not die. Uh, he is still alive. But the uh, firefighter, one of the firefighters did die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it was, it's a, it's a lengthy video to watch. Um, and I definitely think anybody who's listening to this should, should watch. This is a scene where, uh, again, a true medical emergency, the medical emergency, which was a safe scene, law enforcement was on scene, uh, gave us Narcan and progressed into an unsafe scene. Well, you know, the providers became non-complacent when, when they saw that things were escalating with PD, they should have been backing away. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to armchair quarterback these crews of what they did. It's a tragic event. But as providers, we need to learn from their mistakes, the mistakes that happened. And, you know, the unfortunate part is, is a death did occur mm-hmm. from this. And it came from truly a, a medical scene where Narcan was given and became non-complacent to a scene that became unsafe uh, is what it came down to. 
So, yes, we should have gave Narcan. But let me ask you this: in in hindsight, good again playing devil's advocate here, could they have actually got him? He was still awake. You know, he was still breathing fine, everything like that. Could they have got him on the cotton strap now before they gave him the Narcan? Yeah, sure. Is that possible? It's a possibility, sure. So, you know, and maybe prepare for for that transport um, before ever giving the Narcan. Or, again, just giving him enough to make him breathe. Make sure he's breathing well, not waking him all the way up. Again, these are all things that we're not trying to armchair quarterback, but the things that we can look at to keep ourselves safe. Kevin, what's your thoughts on this? It's correct. Moving forward, we want to learn from what occurred in the scene. Um, you know, they, they got caught up in the treatment of the patient, rightfully so. I don't know any of us that wouldn't have. Um, that part of our brain, it goes, no, this guy's a patient. We need to not back up. We need to make sure he doesn't collapse and something else happen. Gets it, it fogs us. We've all done it. I still do it to this day. Catch myself afterwards going, oh, that hand, that went, that ended better than I, it could have. <laughs> um, and their situation was probably that. And it escalated so quickly, they didn't have time necessarily to back away. But yes, I, you know, how much could, was given, nobody knows. Moving forward, we want to use it to, as a lesson, like Jay said, to go, hey, give enough to have them breathe or get them located in a safe situation because that ambulance is your office. Move them back there. Get them away from everybody staring. Get them away from the additional cameras. You can always have law enforcement sit in the back with you if, if you need this, to do it to, to feel safer in case this person wakes up more than you expect them to. And that happens, too, with Narcan administration. Mm -hmm. um, so prepare for what's going to happen next. You know, they probably were in their mind preparing for what's going to happen next, not realizing the scope of where it went. I want to ask you this question. Either one of you can answer. Is Narcan, is Narcan available to the public? Yep. It is. They are giving it out for nothing now to people that have known drug, drug issues. Okay. And another friend of mine who is in the social service industry, um, we were talking about it probably two or three years ago. And I asked if he has seen an increase of um, rehab admissions to his rehab area uh -huh. for opioids. And of course, he's like, absolutely. And he, his next statement was, they don't care. And I'm like, what do you mean they don't care? He goes, there's Narcan. There's no reason for them to get clean if they're going to hand Narcan out for free. And if they overdose, they just get woken up and go about their business. The, the reason why I brought it up is uh, several months ago, there was a story of one of the young Hollywood starlets who had had problems with drug abuse in the past, I had gone through a, another set, set of depression and wound up. Uh, overdosing. And her mother, according to the story, if, if I got it right, her mother administered Narcan to her. Probably. And before the uh, paramedics arrived and got her back and you know, was interviewed. So, again, the fact is that if, we, if this drug is available to anybody who asks for it, are we not just feathering the nest of people who abuse medications, are, are, are we not just I, telling them, "Here's your here's the, your e ticket"? You get I mean, this is this is my opinion more so than fact, right? Um, from 
seeing this stuff, it yes, we are doing that. Like I said, the pendulum swing in the opposite direction because now the opioid crisis that everybody's talking about, in my experience, it has not always been. It's usually a money issue. First, it was methamphetamines that was the big thing, right? Um, and then methamphetamines got expensive. So then the next thing was heroin was inexpensive. So addicts will switch to the next thing that they can get high off of. And then we had the pill mills closed down because all the, everybody's on pain meds. But once that happened, they switched to heroin. So then you have all these things changing. And then they're like, and then you had the economic crisis where people were pushing into that area. So we've, everybody's thought that's happening. We have to do something. And that, when I hear that phrase, I, I kind of cringe. I'm like, oh, no, here comes some type of extreme thing that's going to make people feel better because they're doing something. And it might not necessarily be, I don't want to say correct, because we use it in the medical field to treat it. It, it. it does its job. But to just blanket everything with Narcan and hand it out to everybody who wants it, I agree. Are we perpetuating the issue instead of fixing it? And yet it's because it's such a drastic thing. These people are going to die if they don't have someone breathe for them. Well, we can do that and call 911. There is a way to make that happen without giving the drug. But what looks better, what makes people feel better? We've given the Narcan, they've woken up. It's such a long drawn out conversation now to fix this it's going to be a slow process. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, the system is broken, um, as are many of, of formerly well-established systems uh, in our society today, and not, not just in this country. We, we see it in, in many uh, developed countries, uh, similar situations, similar problems. It's not just in one state or one city. You can travel across this country and find it in, I would say, the majority of locations that you go to. Sure, there are going to be small areas that life's a little bit more peaceful, a little more calm, and uh, some of us probably yearn for being able to do this job that we love in those kind of places, and others like the action, the constant action and reaction, which is fine too, because that's why we got in this job, is to help people, and some of us like to be on those calls, you know, get 12, 15, 18 calls in, in a day, but we want to be able to do what we've learned and do it properly, whether we're being firefighters, we're being law enforcement, we're being paramedics. Yet society is flexing and, and pulsing and changing so rapidly that it's difficult for the entire first responder group to adapt fast enough without stepping into something at the, at the same time. And we're trying. We all are trying. And what you guys have said today is a perfect example of that when you think clearly and plan, you can still do this job and be really effective at it and save lives and help people. We're just not having the opportunity to do it in that fashion as often as we would like. I 100% agree with that, and yes. you know, I, you know, and I'll give give one more example. Uh, one in our department that uh, I do a lot of education for, they have told me that uh, over the last couple months they've had three overdoses they respond on responded on, and the patient, the person who overdosed, actually had Narcan in their own pocket, their own Narcan, 
I believe so it. So the issue is, is not just them having it because if they don't tell someone else how to use it <laughs> or that they're you know using the drug to start with, it didn't do any good anyway. So maybe instead of everybody just standing around waiting for the ambulance to get there, if they would have just been instructed to breathe for the person, they would have survived. That, that could have made a big difference there. That's a so, good point. And that, that backs up what you said about let's give police BVMs to to manage that until we get on the scene. So we you know we're not asking. And a lot of and a lot of times they wake up from just ventilating them. Right. Yep. I've had that happen numerous times where it surprises the heck out of you when all of a sudden someone's got reaches up and grabs your hand and you're just breathing for them thinking they need Narcan at this point. And I'm just buying the time till we can get the IV established. I have additional crew members and we're doing it slowly. And next thing I know, I feel a hand grabbing. Like, who just grabbed me? Like, that's the patient. Like, oh, okay, they're waking up. I gave them a couple of breaths with some oxygen and lo and behold, that's the magical drug that woke them up. Mm. Um, and then at that point, we don't necessarily need the Narcan. But sure. it's it's such a like I said we're probably going to take some people off of our opinions, but it's not to take it away from them. It's like let's reeducate, let's get appropriateness, add some more appropriate um, guidelines for this treatment. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so I think we've we've really covered this issue with Narcan. Uh, whether you agree or disagree, at least we have the discussion, and that's where we can start from. You know, that's, you know, we can agree to disagree, but as long as we're willing to discuss a topic, maybe we can make progress. And in this case, this progress could be life-saving on both sides, both to the patient and to the administrator. And that's what's most important is saving lives. So we'll be right back with our guests right after these words. Please stay tuned. You are listening to Five Alarm Task Force, news and issues for today's first responders. Okay, so five tacos of cheese and a large soda, that's $10,012. Please drive around. Wait, 10000 what? It's obvious you're buzzed and driving. I've only had a few. I'm fine. Yeah, the food's 12 bucks, but getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Please drive around. Actually, just park and come in. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Yeah, you, it's me, your heart. Listen to me. We've got to talk. High blood pressure is serious, and yours? Whoa. What happened to us? We used to be so much more active. But lately, you've been ignoring me. I know you think I'm just going to keep ticking away forever, but you're wrong. You can do so much more to control your high blood pressure. Doing the minimum isn't doing enough. I'm under a lot of pressure and can quit whenever I want. Bet you didn't know that. But I like my job. Just treat me better. Check on me. Give me something green to nibble on every once in a while. And maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. Let's get to it. After all, we're in this together. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check, change, control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. And welcome back to the third segment of this podcast, Five Alarm Task Force, with my guests, Jason Brooks and Kevin Onorovoli. And we've kind of been talking about in these first two segments 
somewhat of the darker side of what's happening in EMS today. And we have to remember that for 99.9% of EMS providers, their goal is to take care of people. That's what they want to do, make people better, help them, and help them feel better in, in the best way they can that's within the parameters of their training and the law. So we're not, it's not that we're picking on any one thing. It's just these are problems that manifest, have manifested today as society has changed. So in this third segment, we're going to come back to try to put a little frosting on this dark cake and say, what can we do to get back to being the care providers that we're supposed to be and hopefully most of us signed up to be? So, gentlemen, where do we go from here? I'll start this one. I think that the first thing we can do is remember why we got into the field to start with. Remember that, as I said uh, in our segments, is this is a customer service-based industry. Everybody who calls 911, anybody who go to treat, is a patient. So we treat them with respect. We give them the care and compassion that we'd want uh, our mother, our grandmother, to get from somebody. There's a start right there, is remember customer service, good customer service. If you give good customer service, it's really hard for someone to want to punch you in the face. True. Um, we talk about, which Kevin can say, we talk about this a lot in our program, is the simple fact that we need to get back to where we started, which was caring. On top of getting back from where we're caring is there's things that our employers can do, the administrators. They can start giving us, giving the, the providers the additional help that they need so that they are not you know, so overworked. Um, when you have a peak uh, set of hours that, you know, your all your crews are running constantly, you're starting to get delayed in uh, other responses, things like that. Just look at doing things like putting on other peak cars uh, to help out with with the stress that's being added onto the providers. Again, those those things come to, that last part there comes down to dollars and cents, and sometimes there's just not enough dollars to make the sense, but it's one of those things that we need to look at is how do we make the job enjoyable for people still? And last but not least is we need to stop thinking, taking things personally when someone's having a bad day and they are, you know, going off on us, as long as they're not threatening us saying, no, I'm going to kick your ass, et cetera. They're just complaining for lack of better words. There is say things like, you know, I get that. Start right there. Is let them vent. Because that's sometimes just what they want, is someone to listen to them. And I'll tell you, some of the best care I've ever given as a paramedic has not been actually giving medications or shocking somebody. It's been listening to people. Actively listening to them and letting them spill out their emotions. Those are the people that I think I've helped the most in my 23 years as a paramedic. Kevin, what's your thoughts? Um, just as long as what you said, just the same line as what you just said, getting back to what we're doing this job for. Um, I always stress for me, the biggest thing for me right now is patient assessment and it all plays into what you just said, listening to what they have to say, asking, what is it that we can do to make your day better? Because it could be, I just need to go to the hospital for this, or it could involve a whole bunch of different social service issues that I know my agency allows. We have the ability to access for them. But 
getting back to that specific thing, asking what's going on, remembering. And, and yeah, I, I don't know where I heard I get that from, but I say it a lot. I don't know what training I had. Mm. <laughs> Not sure. And it involved, I think, Kip beating the crap out of me one day in class. But well, I digress. Um, <laughs> um is that very simple phrases and remembering it's not personal. And that's the hard part, getting people to understand it's not personal. We get them in medic school, we get them in EMT school, um, to start them there. Remember, this is what you're there for. This is why we're bringing this care to them. And I stress when I do it too, this is why we, one was called because somebody had an emergency, they need our help. It might be BS to you, but it's not to them. Listen to what they have to say and determine what care you can give them and then do it. Right. right. Was... It's, their, it's their emergency, not ours. Exactly. And, and, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm saying I didn't, I'm not the one that told them what their emergency was, but I'm there to help mitigate it. And even though, again, as Kevin just said very well, is even though I, don't, I may not consider it to be an emergency, I should give them the respect that they deserve to say, you know, I, I get what your problem is today. You know, this is what I'm able to do for you. Again, I treat them with respect. Uh, I go, I don't have rhetorical short comments like, uh, back to them like, well, just so you know, you're going to be sitting in the waiting room. You know what? My job is to give ca ca compassion, care, and transport. And on the way, I'll give them the most respect possible. And I have, I've had people who were belligerently drunk. And when I stop and go, listen, man, I get that. I'm not here to judge you. I, I'm here to give you some care, some compassion, and I'm going to get you the help you need. Just tell me what it is that you really need, and I'd be glad to do it. I don't say to them, you're just drunk. You're just this. You're just that. I, I, I let them vent. I let them talk. And it's amazing. I don't, I don't get involved with altercations with people. Very rarely. It's a very rare occasion. One of the things that we teach in our program is if you use our tactics, which is with good customer service, you'll rarely need to use our techniques. Plain and simple. Because if you're nice, it's really hard to want to punch someone in the face. Sure. I will say, though, I do get to see Kevin in a, in a few weeks. I'll be down you're to punch down me in the face? Station. Yes, I am. <laughs> oh. uh, <laughs> I have something to look forward to, Kev. <laughs> Yeah, I have to come in with a helmet on. Jeez, really? <laughs> at least, at least he's telegraphing it to me. Better make it a fencing helmet. <laughs> uh, so, it's just it's just the truth. Is we need to get over get over ourselves, and the patient doesn't realize that we're on our twelfth call of the day. You know that we just had a baby die in the last call, and we got called right back out for this. Things like that. They don't get it. They don't understand. It's not their job to understand that. It's our job as providers to you know show up there and give put our best foot forward each time which again comes back to the whole neutrality thing too we come back there showing up looking like we're the ones who care not showing up like tactical rambo um that it looks like they're going to go on their next shooting uh showing up there in a kind of compassion uh compassionate uh atmosphere and using words that show that we actually do care. Um, also, body language. Body language is a huge thing. If, if I'm standing there and my uniform is disheveled uh, because, you know, I just woke up from a nap and I didn't, want, I didn't feel like uh, zipping my boots up and my shirt's not tucked in, and I stand there with my arms crossed and I'm like, 
So what's your problem again? How that comes back also to that dece- uh, that perceived disrespect is you don't act like you care. Go back to caring. Go back to what we what we got into this for. Sometimes people just need that that reminder. It's a lot of the small stuff that we have to focus on to do exactly what Jason is saying. Um, I use, use this example when I teach the the DT free MS course. Is I had a medic that I worked that worked for me. It was on my team, and when they would interview a patient, they unfortunately stood there with their arms crossed. They would look away, and they'd be nodding their head. Now I knew this person. That was how they thought. That was their thinking stance per se. And when I watched the patient look at them, I'm like, uh oh. The patient's demeanor changed. She started staring down the pa- the medic like this person doesn't care a damn thing about what I'm saying to them right now. Now I knew the opposite. That medic was actually listening intently, formulating a plan for this person's treatment, and was going to execute that plan once it was determined that the woman had stopped talking about what her ailment was. After the call went down, I pulled her aside and was like, look, nothing went wrong on this call. Treatment was fantastic. Everything went the way it was supposed to. They got what they needed. However, if you noticed that that person was looking at you a little funny, this is what they saw on your end. And I demonstrated what the positioning was. I said, now, granted, I know you. This isn't a, oh, you're going to get disciplined conversation. This is coaching of, hey, in the future, try and keep a conscious effort to not stand like that and change a little bit and focus on them because your stand, your thinking stance, if we want to call it that, gives that perception of disrespect. And they were like, oh, I didn't even pick up on it because they're so used to standing that way. And from that moment on, would actually think about how they would stand and talk to a patient. And then that's how we ended up in there. Like I said, I added into our training for the, the course for stances and how to stand in front of somebody and at least look interested. Your brain might be checked out because it is three o'clock in the morning. You're on your 15th call. You got to do as best you can to make it look like you care. I know it's hard. We've all been there. You're tired. But that person deserves that respect from you. Absolutely. I was I worked as a um, administrator and triage director in a physician's office. And one afternoon, one of my uh, women who worked there answered the phone and it was a I could tell it was a patient and trying to get an appointment want to see the doctor. And it, the conversation, even on the one side from my office, I was a little testy. And so when it was over and just before we left that day, I brought everybody together. Uh, and I said, listen, I said, um, when we have to understand that most of the time when somebody calls our office, they don't feel well or they're waiting for test results. So they may not be happy-go-lucky with, with that phone call, especially if they really don't feel well or it's been a while and you know they're concerned about what those test results may show based on the symptoms in their meeting with the doctor. I said, so we have to remember that it's our job to understand that and to be compassionate on the phone with that patient and understand why they're calling, what they're trying to accomplish, and it's our job to help them accomplish that task. They may not always be nice. They may not, they may even, you know, be really vocally somewhat abusive and you don't have to take abuse. And what you can say calmly is, you know, I'd like to discuss this with you in a nice calm manner, um, but if you're going to you know, be abusive, I, I'm not able to. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll be here. And as long as you're, you're ready, I will 
talk with you. And I think once we got that in, and it, it reminded me later of, of course, what Chief, the late Chief Alan Brunaccini taught us. Our job is to take care of Mrs. Smith on her worst possible day. And if that worst possible day for her is her cat in the tree, then we take care of that problem for Mrs. Smith and move on to our next call. And I think the same thing holds true with what we've talked about today. All of us who are in this business, we do it because we really do care about people and want to help them. And sometimes they're abusive to us. And what and we have to look at, and you guys have made some great suggestions, and Kevin, the, the, what you just mentioned about the stance often tells it all, and not just in the paramedic, but in business, in the store, how the manager or so, an employee looks at you and they put that, those arms crossed and they stand on one hip and they're giving you the, you know, the, the dirty eye. And all of a sudden you have no more respect for them or the situation or the place where you're at. Because not, you didn't even have to say anything. It was that stance that passed on the wrong message to them. And I think that's a real valid point that we have to be careful that both of you have just said. We need to work as an industry together, but individually we have to learn how we, we're going to best serve our clients and reduce what we can do to reduce the chance of an encounter becoming uh, toxic or, or even violent. And I think that those are very, very important points for this industry today. Couldn't agree more. I agree too. All right. Well, I'll tell you, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure to have you with me today. I think, yeah, we talked about a few touchy areas, but I think, you know, sometimes we have to talk about that, which is uncomfortable. Certainly we didn't make, you know, make any fun of it, but we're talking about the issues, some of the issues that uh, fire, fire medics and paramedics face every day today across this country. These, and, and to our listeners, wherever you may be, these are not incidents that are just confined to, don't think that they're just confined to certain areas of a community uh, and stuff like that. They're all over the place. They can be at the, at, in the poorest part of the community, and they can be in the wealthiest part of the community. Those of us who have been in this business have seen it all. And we've been all over our communities and seen the best and the worst. I'll tell you, the one thing you could always yearn for when you deliver this kind of treatment that surprised the hell out of me the first time was a hug. The first time I got a hug from a patient's relative. We had a successful revival on CPR of a patient. His wife came up to me and the other guy from our rescue because we were still waiting for EMS and we started CPR right away and we got him back. I mean, really well back. And the wife came over and hugged us. And I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to say. The first time I, that's the first time it ever happened to me. But I'll tell you something, it wasn't the last. If you wanted something to make your day when you've been on your 15th call and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, like one of you just said, and that patient's relative comes up and hugs you or gives you a hearty shake of the hand and say, thank you so very much for helping my relative, there's nothing better than that. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. I really appreciate you guys spending time with us today. I want you to know that you always have an open invitation to come back and discuss more topics in the delivery of emergency care. 
And I wish you both much success, safety, and also success, not just in your delivery of care, but in what you're trying to teach our brothers and sisters who are in the same line of work that we love to do as well. And hopefully you can get that message to them and then they can pass it on as, as well and others will see them acting according to some of the ideas that you guys have shared today. So thanks very much and um, we look forward to another time. Folks, we'll be right back right after these words. Please stay tuned. If you enjoy listening to Five Alarm Task Force, then why not share the news? No, not just on social media, but around town. We've just opened our little shop of wonders with our friends at Teespring. We have four t-shirts available, each with our four-color logo on the front, and on the back, your choice of a listener, supporter, or responder, wording, or choose the tea with the words of wisdom from our good friend, Chief Robert Fling, all available in varied colors. Prefer to add a new mug for your collection at the firehouse or at home? We have two, with the full title of the podcast in slightly different fonts, also in several colors. The best part? No matter which items you choose, you'll know that a portion of the net proceeds will be donated to the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, just as I did with my book, Fish Out of Water, Two Jewish Guys in a Deep South Firehouse, available on Amazon. Want to browse? Want to buy? Just head over to bit.ly forward slash Dalmat Store with a capital D and a capital S, or dial up our website at www.dalmatianproductions.tv and select the podcast promo tab. As always, thank you for listening, and stay safe. Does your company often invest in a booth for fire rescue conferences? Have you sat there watching attendees walk right by your booth and wonder what you could do to attract more traffic? We might have an answer for you. Now you can bring the Five Alarm Task Force podcast to your booth. We'll set up our system there and record sound bites and interviews with your guests and even a mini podcast with you to promote your products or services. Now in our fourth season, Five Alarm Task Force has listeners in over 40 countries across six continents and has thousands of accesses each month. Check out our library of over 150 podcasts on our website at www.dalmatianproductions.tv. Best of all, this package is surprisingly very affordable. For more information, please send an email to dalmatprod at outlook.com. We will get back to you as soon as possible. Again, that address is D-A-L-M as in Michael, A-T, P as in Peter, R-O-D, at Outlook.com. Five Alarm Task Force. We deliver news and issues for today's first responders. Did you know that 90% of American communities are served by volunteer fire departments? and that many of those departments are actively looking for more volunteers? When you hear those sirens, do you say to yourself, wish I could do that? If you have the drive to serve, you can be a volunteer too. Volunteer and combo departments are always looking for new recruits. You'll be trained in the latest firefighting and rescue techniques and protecting your community at the same time. You'll be joining the ranks of over 1 million men and women who serve their cities and towns protecting lives and property. Did you know that the founder of the first volunteer fire department was Benjamin Franklin? If old Ben can do it, so can you. Drop by your local fire department and introduce yourself. You just might know some of the folks already there. Before you know it, those volunteers will be like family. Anyone can be a volunteer, sure. It takes time and effort, but in your heart, you'll realize that it's all worth it. Want more information? Contact your local fire department or visit makemeafirefighter.org.
And that wraps this episode of Five Alum Task Force. We'd like to thank our guests, Jason Brooks and Kevin Onorovoli, here to discuss with us what do we do to get back to being the care providers we are supposed to be. Did you know you can now find us and subscribe to us on all the top podcast platforms? Just search for Five Alum Task Force. We also want to thank our sponsors, Insight Training LLC and the Firehouse Tribune, and our promotional partners, Dalmatian Productions, Chief Miller Products and Sites, LifeScan Wellness Centers, Nestor Bars, the Firefighter Cancer Foundation, the Firefighter Cancer Support Network, and the 2019 Great Florida Fire School. If you would like to be a guest with us or have a suggestion for a show, please drop us a line to dalmatprod.outlook.com. You can follow us on Twitter at dalmatprod and on Facebook at forward slash dalmatprod and dalmatprodfire. Stay up to date with all the news about our podcast, Dalmatian Productions, and our blog on our website, www.dalmatianproductions.tv. I'm Steve Green. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and let's make sure everyone goes home.